Episode 24, Kaiju, Part 2. Don't talk, just listen. Under the black sun there is no hope, only mystery, wonder. And danger. Black Sun Dispatches on the Cinefunks Podcast Network. For some, the state of dreaming persists all through even their waking life. This is known as insanity. The kaiju, for all its strangeness, could not be called insane. It knew itself, and it knew its world and the limits of both. It walked and it ate and it drank, obeying instinct and necessity in an orderly fashion. And yes, it dreamed. It dreamed now, its body curled atop a nest made of ruin. It dreamed of a red sky. And in this dream, it knew, as it never had in life, what it meant to be hunted. In dream, some other thing stalked it, always just one step behind, hot breath wetting the back of the kaiju's neck with saliva that burned at the touch. It ran, the other pursued. It ran even faster. The other remained only half a breath away. It panted and moaned and gasped with exhaustion, with terror. How could it feel so afraid? How could it feel so small? Fear was a bitter new taste upon its tongue, and it drove the kaiju on faster and further. But death did not care how fast or how far it ran. Death remained always one step and one breath away. The kaiju roared its horror and spurred itself to one final burst of speed, launching itself out of dream and back into the city beneath the black sun. Its eyes were wide and wild. It could still taste its own fear. It looked this way, then that. The phantom, whatever it had been, 
had been left beneath the red sky. But that taste, that taste would not abate. Puffing, puffing, the kaiju rose. It had to move, had to break, had to destroy for whatever that had been returned to make it feel small. And now it could be said that the kaiju was insane. Are you out of your mind? No one understood why Cassandra had to go. It was, after all, the same non-logic that had alerted her to the fact that the kaiju was coming back. She had one foot out of reality, as it was. It was a difficult thing trying to impress upon others that what was glimpsed outside of this physical world was just as true as that within it. So a confluence of newer gods had appeared to Cassandra and gifted to her a single tooth from the mouth of old King Croc, with which she knew she was meant to strike down the kaiju. And this, she was given to understand, was only an opening volley in a cosmological chess match, the scope of which she could barely fathom. A tough sell all around. Cassandra kept the details of the visitation to herself and spoke instead only in feelings. I have to do this. I just do. I just know it. No one understood. Not even Priya Patel. Cassandra could not bring herself to share all, not even with her. It was too strange, too huge, too much. And there was something else as well. Cassandra had a quality shared by many lonesome souls. The belief that they are alone because there was something broken and inherently unlovable within them. A mark that could never be erased or ever overlooked. Priya Patel gave love without hesitation or condition. Yet, Cassandra could not help but feel like a thief within her own life. She feared that 
with one false step, one quirk too many, she would be found out and the love revoked. And she, she would be poor for having known it and lost. Help me understand, Priya Patel asked. I can't, Cassandra replied. As she passed, Priya Patel seized Cassandra's arm and she wondered if once more Priya would tear her away from fate's hands. Instead, the other woman pressed a walkie-talkie into Cassandra's own hands. When it's done, you call me. Cassandra nodded and began to walk. Cassandra! Priya Patel caught her and held her. And for one instant, all around them was muted and they were free to float in twine lights lost in the dark together. Don't call until it's done, Priya Patel whispered. Whatever you have to do, finish it. And then you come home to me. Cassandra held her one last time, but a part of her was already gone, already priming for the next task, the next challenge. She wondered if she would ever be truly complete, or some part of her was damned to always be away. Maybe her outcast soul would always find a way to be outside looking in. Maybe, in some way, that was what she preferred. Cassandra risked one look back down the pipe, hoping to catch a final glimpse of Priya Patel. But the gloom had swallowed all. It was too dark to fly, a condition Terry had never experienced since his wings grew in. Normally, or as normal as conditions could be when you are an adolescent boy who has been transfigured into a gargoyle-like monster, he could see through the twilight as clear as day. He swam in it. But this dark that now suffocated the city had none of the cleanliness of night. This was the dark of ash clouds and of filth. This was not the sun in natural repose, gathering strength for the next break. This was an altogether different shade of bleak. So he went on foot, 
wings tucked behind him like a cape. It made him itch being this close to the ground, and he knew Mike felt the same way. His best friend slash sidekick slash undefined etc. could not stop looking about, always primed for the next attack. Terry did not blame him. Earthbound existence had brought only blood and misery down upon their heads, and so an evacuation had been in order. But it seemed likely that the kaiju would leave few, if any, rooftops on which to roost. Its frenzy had died down, at least in part, but the city still bled smoke. Its groans and roars could still be heard off in the distance, behind a curtain of destruction. Terry had half a mind to take Mike and make a break for the midnight desert. Monsters seemed more at home there anyway. But Mike would almost certainly perish were they to tackle such an environment. He supposed he could leave Mike. But no. No, he would not do that. Not ever. And so, instead, he had answered the dream. In this dream, as in many, he had been flying beneath a red sky. It was under this same sky that he had made the deal that took him from boy to whatever this thing he now was. No matter how good a life he led, no matter how bright he lit his world, whenever Terry closed his eyes, the shock of red was waiting. And then there was that one time, but he dared not even think about that. In this dream, as in the others, he soared across the barren red wastes. But this time, a disturbance appeared in the air before him. A speck. As he neared it, the speck resolved itself into a bird. A hawk. He knew, with a certainty only available in dreams, that he must follow this hawk. He did so, flying for he knew not how long. He flew until it felt as though his heart pumped fire and he exhaled smog. He flew until his body felt like a dead thing distant from itself. He flew until his wings seized and he fell like a stone. He fell and hit and broke every piece of himself. In agony, he rolled over and beheld the sky free of blood. The hawk came to settle beside his head. Though Terry could not see it and could not move his head to see it, he suddenly had the sense that whatever now sat behind him was most definitely not a hawk. It can be yours.
a voice said. But my child, it will hurt worse than this. So much worse than this. Would you still try it? Through broken lips, Terry forced the word, yes. The other, whoever or whatever it was, sighed. From it, Terry felt only sorrow. Then go where I tell you to go. Meet who I tell you to meet and help her as she asks. And know that I am sorry for all of it. The other leaned over and whispered in Terry's ear just precisely where to go and when to be there. So as the sewer grate slid open and a red-hooded woman emerged, Terry did not feel surprise or even concern, really. He would hate to leave Mike, of course, but for the first time since the city fell, for the first time in his life, really, he felt purpose. He felt a reason for all that had happened to him. He would do what he had to do. He would suffer what he must. And in the end, he would be free of that accursed red sky and no price could possibly be too high to pay. The tragedy is that at the time, he probably believed that to be true. The kaiju never saw it coming. Its guard was up. It still sent a death in every direction, a drumline of terror playing up and down its spine. But death came as a speck, a speck of dust no more remarkable than any other that the kaiju cast its eye upon. Only this speck the steady course. Months of carrying Mike had conditioned Terry for this kind of work, and though he still could not see very clearly through the brown-black fog, the kaiju's presence was marked by the denser black of its being, like a mountain clear even in a blizzard. Up he went, the woman Cassandra in his arms. If it weren't for Mike, he would never have been able to do this. It was almost like, but no matter. Onward, upward, one speck, 
unremarkable among the mass. Cassandra clung to the crock tooth so tight that her knuckles went white, and her fingers pricked the jagged tip and began to bleed. It was hard to breathe, impossible to see, and the shuddering motion of the body carrying her up made her feel nauseous. This was insanity. This was, without question, not only the dumbest thing she had ever done, it was probably the dumbest fucking thing anyone anywhere had ever done. But what was she supposed to do? Yell, whoops, my bad, let's not do this, up to Terry. No. No, there could be no going back. The path was chosen, the arc committed. The tooth began to glow. She did not notice at first, so completely did she hold the item. But when Cassandra readjusted her grip, an errant twinkle escaped. She opened her hand and held. She could vaguely make out the shape of the tooth still, but even as she watched the dimensions melted away, the weight vanished, and what she possessed now was light, pure light, the golden light of dawn. Cassandra closed her hand around the glow and pressed that hand to her heart. The kaiju saw the light as well, momentary though it was, but the creature paid no mind to it. The kaiju, you see, was a being of the black sun, and rays of golden warmth meant as little to it as a kaleidoscope does to a blind man. So it missed this last opportunity to save itself. The speck grew closer. It made a final ragged burst upwards, coming just above level with the kaiju's eye. Now, cried a voice that the kaiju could never have understood. Terry let go. Cassandra fell. The kaiju felt a sudden, meaningless weight on its maw, but again paid no mind. The pit pad of steps across its muzzle, that too was only a minor annoyance. It scanned the horizon again. It knew the danger from its dream was real, was close. But where? Suddenly, fully half of the kaiju's vision was taken up by the figure of a girl in a red hood. At first, the kaiju lunged back, thinking another giant had arrived. But as it moved, the girl grabbed onto the flesh of its face and rode the tremor. This wasn't a giant. She was small, person-sized, a person. What gave her the audacity to stand unbowed before a god? The kaiju knew confusion. 
the girl opened her hand. She held a blade. No, she held a tooth. No, she held a light. No, not a light. She held light itself. She raised her hand and the kaiju knew fear. Cassandra stabbed. The light exploded into the kaiju's socket, blazing through flesh and bone and burning clean to the brain where it kindled and spread. What was this? was all the kaiju could think as burning gold flooded the chambers of its being. Muscles seized and failed, blood boiled and fizzled within their veins. The kaiju raised its head to give a final, maddened roar, but the sound died in its throat. For its eyes, the remaining and the ruined, beheld something it never could have conceived of before. Something that mind could fundamentally not process. And so, at the very last, the kaiju knew all. It was a long moment before the earth ceased its trembling. Plumes of smog and ash rose from the corpse of the kaiju. A soul sprung from its vessel and surging away into the beyond. Cassandra! Terry touched down to the ground, all his muscles suddenly failing him. Exhaustion sprang from its keep and tackled him down. He fought his way back up and staggered toward the kaiju's head. Cassandra! Terry could hear the sound of his own name being called somewhere in the distance. Mike. Over here! He shouted. And then, Cassandra! Once more. Without warning, the mass of the kaiju's head spasmed. Terry lurched back with a speed that belied how tired he was. From the head, there came what he could only describe as a slimy rip. The nearest part of the kaiju's mouth stretched and tore. The woman Cassandra slid out. She almost fell, but Terry caught her. Are you okay? He asked. Cassandra looked about in a daze. What a ride, she gasped, and then emitted a single bark of laughter. I think that's enough for one day, Terry said. Let's go home. And there was Mike, breaking through the industrial fog. He waved. 
Terry would never forget that wave. He would never forget the feel of his own hand rising to return the greeting, only to stop, for there were other shapes moving out of the fog. He would never forget the quizzical look that came over Mike's face, or how the other boy turned. He acted on instinct, the instinct that Terry had taught him. Mike's hand went for his blade. A single shot. A pitiful, small thud. Red mist. Terry screamed, dropped Cassandra, charged. But the others were ready now and they fired bolts, not bullets. Terry's muscles seized. His legs went numb. They went at him with fists, with clubs, with hilts, and finally trussed him into a net. Through it all, Terry did not fight and did not struggle. Through the force of their legs, his eyes did not leave the prone body of Mike. He willed it to move. He begged it to move. He pleaded for the body to no longer be a body, to be Mike again. But Mike was gone, and that which remained could never be Mike again. Cassandra could only watch from the ground as they dragged Terry away. Only a handful remained behind. One of this number approached her. The man was natally dressed. Were it not for the lattice work of scars across his face and scalp, he might even have resembled James Bond. Like the lad said, Conleth McMurray grinned, let's go home. Slowly, the people of the city picked their way up and out of the sewers, the basements, the holes in the walls. Much of the city that had survived the first six years was now either leveled or massively damaged. The safe spaces they had built, the homes they had forged, the lives they had fought for, gone. There began to be a feeling that maybe they should get gone too. Maybe that would be easier. But when night fell and the cool spring air settled down, someone built a fire and others came to gather there 
and stories retreated. And somehow, soon, laughter rose above the ruins and the fire spread. And in the dawn that followed, the people of the Black Sun began to build again. But you and I will not be here for that. Our eyes must turn away. Don't worry over much for Dr. Andrews, or the kids with the dog, or even the actors. We'll be back to them in time. But for now, we must away to the fortified center of the city, its safety recently reaffirmed in innocent blood. Here, the kaiju did not tread. Somewhere, deep within the labyrinthine corridors and hallways of this keep, the woman Cassandra is bound to a chair. As she waits, the door to her prison opens. The man she's been expecting steps in. The man in the gray suit is as gray as the hair he wears like the close to the skull. A longer bullet relieved his face of its lips, and so his teeth are always bared. But even still, Cassandra can tell that he is smiling. She sighs. Hi, Dad. And that's it, folks. So ends the first season of Black Sun Dispatches, part of the Cinepunks Podcast Network. My name is Brent Foley, and I write, produce, and perform the show. Black Sun Dispatches is only one of many great shows offered by the Cinepunks Network. Uh, you can check out Loud Fast Philly, Cinepunks, Horror Business, The Mandate, or any other great shows or writing that we have on the site. Cinepunks is made possible by Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations, and you can hit them up at xlvacx.com. Again, it's Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations at xlvacx.com. And you can be a Cinepunk sponsor if you want by supporting our Patreon, which is on the website. So I hope you guys have all liked this very first season of Black Sun Dispatches. Uh, the plan is to take May off and come back sometime in June with the whole new run. Uh, like I said, I hope you guys uh, enjoy this first season. Uh, and are back when we are we'll be back when we come back. Uh, in the meantime, please rate and review the show on iTunes and help spread the word. You know, tell everyone you can about this first season. Uh, hopefully, now that it's concluded, you can kind of take a step back and see uh, that it wasn't just random nonsense. It was mostly random nonsense, but there was a little bit of underlying theme and things to that kind of thing. Uh, Blackson Dispatch's logo was designed by Jennifer Rogers. Uh, the show's music was Winter by E.L. Heath. Uh, and you can follow the show on Twitter at Black Sun Show, and you can follow me on Twitter at the True Brendan F. Again, that's at Black Sun Show, 
and at the true Brennan F. And we'll keep you updated on uh, when the show's coming back and hints about maybe what's coming next. So like I said, I hope you guys have all really, really dug. Uh, I really liked. I really like making the show, and I hope you guys have enjoyed listening to it. And hopefully, it'll be even bigger and better by the time we come back for season two. So again, thanks.